We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. This is Michael Krasny. As coronavirus cases continue to rise in California, Governor Newsom yesterday introduced a regional stay-at-home order that will go into effect when ICU capacity dips below 15%. The order requires bars, restaurant dining, hair salons, gyms, and other businesses to close and also restricts non-essential travel in the state. Though no region has yet met that threshold, experts expect that most of the state will be impacted by it, and some counties, like Alameda, are saying they might impose a stay-at-home order even before ICU capacity drops to 15%. Governor Newsom also announced that the first doses of the Pfizer vaccine will be distributed by mid-December, and we'll talk about the impact of the order and the vaccination plan for California next, after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Yesterday, Governor Gavin Newsom announced both an emergency break regional stay-at-home order and a plan for distributing the first doses of the Pfizer vaccine. The order divides the state into five regions and will go into effect when ICU bed capacity in a region drops below 15%. While no region has currently met that threshold, experts expect that most of California will be affected by the order which will close restaurant dining, bars, gyms, and hair salons, among other businesses, for at least three weeks. The vaccination plan outlines how the vaccine will be distributed, with an emphasis on targeting healthcare workers. We're going to discuss the new order, the vaccination plan, and how a COVID-weary public may respond to both. And joining us is April Domboski, who is health correspondent for KQED News, and welcome, April. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning to you. We'll also say good morning to Dr. George Rutherford, who joins us, professor of epidemiology and biostatistics and director of the Prevention and Public Health Group organization at UCSF. Welcome back, George Rutherford. Thanks very much, Michael. Good to be here. Good to have you. And let me begin, April, with you. Let's see if we can outline what actually the governor put forward yesterday. One expects with numbers coming in from the Thanksgiving holiday, we'll have what uh, Dr. Fauci called a surge on top of a surge. And that really is behind this action. Uh, there's a sense of a blueprint here that really says well, eventually probably stay at home if these numbers of the ICU fall below 15% uh, in these five regions. Uh, how did they determine that kind of a number? Do we know? Uh, well, you know, I think it's about, uh, you know, how many beds are do we have available? How, and But it's also about the staffing in ICUs. You know, the governor and health authorities are really concerned about how long our doctors and nurses have been, you know, caring for patients through this pandemic. They're, they're really tired. Um, And we're, you know, have also been getting sick uh, disproportionately compared to the rest of the population. And so it's really about just preserving (laughs) our overall healthcare capacity. And, you know, some of our colleagues uh, talked to Dr. Fauci yesterday, who also emphasized, you know, when talking about this surge upon a surge that, you know, enacting these kinds of shutdown orders is an attempt to have it be a mini surge as opposed to a major surge. 
And what do we know from this outline that the governor presented yesterday about what's going to be closed and what's going to be open? Uh, he's talking, for example, I know about schools with waivers being open, but uh, he also talked a good deal about 20% capacity. Can you outline that for us? Sure. So it is really different from, you know, the sweeping statewide shutdown that we saw in the spring. Um, the the kinds of places that are targeted for being closed, and, and that is because we know a lot more now about how the virus is transmitted. And so these shutdown orders are focused more on indoor type activities. So bars, wineries, um, uh, indoor dining, although outdoor dining was also included this time around, um, though people can still order takeout and delivery from restaurants. You know, notably, um, Governor Newsom mentioned that, you know, our state parks and beaches are going to remain open. And he actually encouraged people to get outside and exercise, go sledding and skiing, go for a bike ride. Um, schools that have reopened according to their county plans can remain open under this order and retailers um, are also allowed to continue having people shop indoors, but at 20% capacity. And I think that's very much, you know, a nod to the fact that we're in holiday shopping season and, you know, Newsom, I, I can imagine, didn't want to shut down retailers completely at this, this time of year. And we should mention, uh, as you indicated, that the governor really tried to encourage outdoor activity, yoga, meditation, he mentioned physical and mental health, to get us through what he particularly highlighted as a temporary stage, because he was talking about the light at the end of the tunnel, and he did talk about vaccines, and we'll get into that with you, too. I just wanted to, again, flesh out the detail of what he presented yesterday. Uh, he's also talking about travel being, uh, non-essential travel being temporarily restricted statewide. That's right. Um, you know, basically, you know, Dr. Galley was uh, joined doc, uh, Governor Newsom on the um, presentation yesterday, and he was pretty much indicating, you know, we're, we're not actually asking We're we're telling you to not travel right now, pretty much asking people to, you know, cancel their holiday, any kinds of holiday travel plans. Um, and saying, you know, this is only essential travel. And so hotels and lodging, are allowed to, you know, continue operating, but only for, you know, people who are, are traveling for essential business. So I think there, you know, there st seems to be a, still a little bit of confusion around that, especially with, you know, these orders, the shutdown orders being in effect for, for three weeks. So, you know, what, what exactly does that mean for, you know, Christmas and, and New Year's? Also gets into questions like uh, who decides what is or isn't essential travel and who's checking and who's policing it. Uh, those are big questions that it seems to me hovers around this. Uh, what about kids' playgrounds? What do we know in terms of what the governor is directing there? Do we know anything? I, be I believe that um, I believe that children's playgrounds may be closed, which is another sort of confusing aspect of this, considering how much. Governor Newsom was encouraging people to go outside. Yeah. But you know, as you as you mentioned, he he emphasized that this is temporary. And it was also really notable that he emphasized, he called this the final surge of the pandemic. You know, he was talking about how we are California is going to be receiving the first shipments of a vaccine in a in a number of weeks. We'll see those supplies trickle out over the next several months. But Governor Newsom is, uh, seems to be really hopeful that once we start vaccinating people, we won't be having to do this kind of shutdown again. He also emphasized a lot how the state has prepared. You have 600 million pieces of PPE and alluded to 
advances that they've made and, and so forth. There was a lot that was certainly outlined in that talk. And uh, again, April Dombuski is uh, running it down for us. And you may have questions about what the governor set forward. If you have questions about the new health order, you can give us a call now, and I invite you to do that. Toll-free number 866-733-6786. You can join us right now at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. Let me bring Dr. George Rutherford into this, who again is Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and directs the Prevention and Public Health Group organization at UCSF. And George, uh, as April said, we know a lot more about the virus now and uh, a great deal more certainly than we did the first time when the shutdown order came. Talk about that just in conjunction with what we learned from pretty much what was presented yesterday by Governor Newsom. Well, I, I think that we, we do know quite a bit more um, and we have a great, much greater appreciation for the nuances of transmission. For instance, um, uh, fomite or surface transmission seems to be much less likely than we were concerned about in the spring. The other thing is, uh, you know, if we'd known what we know now, we might not have, uh, the schools might not have closed um, in the spring. A, a lot of some of the Asian countries have made it through. The European countries um, that are currently in the middle of their lockdowns are, uh, preserve, are, are closing businesses, but keeping the schools open. I, I think we could, we would have known a little bit more about that. But the, the bottom line is, is that we still, this is still a, a disease that's predominantly transmitted by droplet transmissions, that's somebody coughing or sneezing on you, uh, and that we can prevent it, largely prevent it by wearing masks. Um, and none of that stuff has changed. President-elect uh, Biden has called for 100 days of wearing masks, and certainly in the Bay Area there has been, well, one has to simply look outside, a lot of mask wearing. But I'm interested, George, in your thoughts about the fact that you're going to need a lot of compliance here, uh, and people are getting fatigued with what we could call, I suppose, COVID compliance. Uh, it's wearying, and, and yeah. uh, one has to wonder about compliance, doesn't one? Yeah, and I think that uh, Dr. Fauci is correct in in, in and the governor's correct in, in placing this in the context. We're just asking you to hold on for a little bit longer uh, as we get vaccines rolled out. And the vaccines are going to be coming very, very, very soon. Um, and I think some of the, the concerns we've had about ICU capacity will be um, uh, mitigated because we'll be immunizing those healthcare workers uh, first uh, and avoiding the kinds of uh, rampant um, absenteeism from uh, from exposure and from quarantine that we've seen in other uh, in other states. Um, so I think that's kind of a good news thing to start with. It is. Uh, I'm also wondering when you mentioned the hospitals about how much more uh, in the past, for example, there have been a lot of tents set up because of respiratory uh, flu yeah. problems and so forth. How much does that play into the hospital uh, occupancy problem? It's going to play. It's going to. It's going to allow us to take care of some acute, additional acute care patients. Uh, but it's you know the, these are sick people, uh, largely sick people who are going to need to be taken care of in intensive care units, and you can create some capacity, surge capacity for that. But it's largely the the sort of the general acute care hospital settings that you can um, put into uh, convention centers. You can create temporary facilities for those. It's really hard to do that for intensive care. And what about the fact that uh, we know now, again, getting back to what we've learned, that uh, the virus is not widely transmitted uh, in children. So uh, how much do we really need to, well, close down the schools? 
Well, that's a good question. I mean, as I said, the Europeans haven't done it and they preserve schools at, at the expense of, of bars and restaurants, uh, for instance. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, the governor's order says that if the schools are open, they can remain open. And, um, but the... If they have a waiver, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, through, through the waiver process. I don't think, know that anybody's going to be moving quickly to open schools here with Christmas vacation coming up, with winter vacation coming up. But I think as we get on the other side of it, you'll start to see schools uh, reopen. And I think people will start feeling more comfortable with the, uh, with the whole notion of, um, of having um, kids in school. Coming up on a break here, but I also have to ask you, do we really need to shut down restaurants and make only for takeout? We're going to be talking later on in the program with someone from the restaurant organization uh, that is the industry representative. But how, how necessary is that in your judgment? I think that, the, first of all, no one's done this yet, right? This is, a, this is held off for the future in case we get to uh, below 15% ICU capacity. So it hasn't happened yet. I'm, um, I think that the other uh, thing to, to say is that, you know, the problem, not the problem with restaurants, but the whole issue of restaurants and bars is that people take their masks off when they're indoors. And so it becomes, that's the issue. It's not that they're bad in, per se, it's that people take their masks off when they're there because they have to. You can't eat or drink with that with your mask on. And so having social distancing, having outdoor dining, I think is quite consistent with with um, with low transmission risk. But as we move into a to a point where the transmission risk becomes uh, very very high, um, then it's it's one of those things we're going to have to do, unfortunately. Let me ask listeners again, what questions do you have about the new health order? You can give us a call now. It's 866-733-6786 for your calls. That's 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the new regional stay-at-home order and California's plan to distribute the first doses of the COVID-19 vaccine with April Domboski, who is health correspondent for KQED News, and Dr. George Rutherford, who is professor of epidemiology and biostatistics and directs the Prevention and Public Health Group organization at UCSF. We do welcome your involvement, and if you have questions about the new health order, you can give us a call now, toll-free at 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. And many emails coming in here. Uh, here's a listener. Let me go to you on this, George Rutherford. says, what is the science behind a 10 p.m. curfew? Well, of course, there's no science behind it. But uh, what we do, what we can see is what's happened in Europe, where they've actually had 9 p.m. curfews. Um, 9 p.m. In, in, in Europe for dining is probably more like 6 p.m. here. Um, and what's happened is, is that there's been a, if you look at the curves for, say, France, there's been a remarkable drop off in transmission and cases have fallen almost back to baseline in the space of about two weeks. Um, they went to, uh, to their lockdown um, on October 29th and by about November 10th, the curve had started to drop and it dropped precipitously. Uh, so those are the 
you know, that's the observation. Here's an observation in the form of a question from a listener named Nancy who says, how can you stop people from traveling, especially with these contradictory orders? And Nancy asks, and April, let me go to you on this. Uh, our rentals are all booked from Christmas week to New Year's, and it's a huge market here in Sonoma. Will those be forced to close and people cancel plans? Do we know? I think that's one of the. I, I think that's one of those open questions. Um, you know, I think at some point, you know, the counties will have to decide because I know some um, folks who operate Airbnbs, for example, do look to the county regulations for that. Um, and so I think we'll have to wait and see what happens once you know our these regions do hit these these thresholds to see exactly how they decide. Because again, essential travel is still going to be okay. So. You know, how how can a county is a county going to tell Airbnb operators you can only allow your travelers who are who are here for essential business? So I I think that's one of those unknowns at the moment. And let me bring a caller on. Nomi joins us from San Francisco. Nomi, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, thank you. Can you hear me? Okay. yes. Hear you fine. Um, I'm, I'm challenged with the historical messaging, which is always just so complicated, inconsistent, you know, there's this overemphasis, I believe, on the vaccine efficacies when they haven't really even been fully tested in a comprehensive way. The 90% efficacy, that is really breaks down to lower percentages, which I feel like the media is not telling the people. If one third of the population doesn't, um, get administered these vaccines, and I I think they have to get administered twice, um, then it's not even going to make a major impact. Um, You know, Joe gets vaccine, but, you know, Tom and and Susie don't, and then they interact, and Joe only had one dose. So I feel like there's this this false narrative um, going on that the vaccine is here, it's going to cure everything, just hold on, and wait a few weeks and everything's going to go away and we're going to get rid of COVID. And I think that's, that just doesn't seem true. Nomi, I appreciate your, uh, I don't call it skepticism uh, for lack of a better word, but there is that kind of concern, George Rutherford. I want to go to you on this. It's not a panacea and there are going to be certainly a lot of people who don't want to take it. And there's also concern. Well, for example, there was a cover story in today's New York times about concerns about cybersecurity came up that some hacking about those who were, uh, yeah. You know, putting the vaccine into the uh, in, into the channel where it's going to be going through. And then you have the whole question of AstraZeneca vaccine and this conflict about is it a half a dose or is it two doses? I mean, there are a lot of there's a lot of uncertainty, I guess, is really what she's bringing up here. And I, I'd like to go to you on this. Sure. Well, I mean, here's a chance to really look behind the green curtain for the first time in the history of vaccine development. Uh, so you're seeing it warts and all. But I can uh, let me assure you that the two dose mRNA vaccines are highly, highly effective uh, and are, you know, of the, on the order of our most effective um, vaccines in terms of preventing disease. You are, however, completely correct that you need two doses in order for it to be effective, first of all. And secondly, and, and when we're talking about 95% effective, we're talking about an individual, okay? We're not talking about society or a community at large. In order to achieve herd immunity through vaccination, we're going to have to have a large proportion of the population um, vaccinated. I would completely settle for two thirds. If you think that's what it is, Nomi, I'm down with that. That'll be great. 
Um, what we know from prison outbreaks, which you can only take so far because you know it's not like we live in prisons, uh, that uh, herd immunity was reached naturally at somewhere in excess of 70%. So I think that um, if we could get two thirds of the people uh, vaccinated, that would be fabulous. This would become a sporadic disease. We would continue to see cases now and then. Uh, and it's because it's, you know, you're going to have to wait, await the less expensive, more logistically feasible vaccines to vaccinate people in, in, in much of the rest of the world. And as long as transmission is being tolerated in other places, we're not going to be, uh, we're going to continue to have small outbreaks from time to time, just like we do with other respiratory diseases. Well, we're going to find out from April what Governor Newsom laid out, but I just wanted to ask you, and I, again, I don't want to, uh, uh, come forward with a what sounds perhaps too skeptical here, but it's an important question. Given that we don't know whether uh, people who are vaccinated will actually be able to infect others, uh, how is that going to impact the concept of herd immunity? Uh, I mean, with respect to people who aren't inoculated or aren't vaccinated. Well, I, I think that's a to, well to start with. That's supposition about being able to infect people. I think what we know is that with these mRNA vaccines, we're going to get a T cell response, and that's also going to be able to be at the cell surface and be able to work in you know places in all sorts of different anatomical places. So I'm actually pretty confident that it's going to um, uh, decrease transmit, really almost eliminate transmission among people who've been vaccinated. Remember that people who are sick, that is sick, have very high titers of virus in their nose and mouth, and they're the ones who are the super spreaders who are transmitting. So I, I think we'll make a huge dent in transmission. I have to let you go in a minute, George, but before I do, I wanted to ask you what you think of Oakland school reopening plan, which uh, is not going to let schools reopen until the city is at orange, whereas most say red. Well, I think they're being conservative. I mean, obviously you have parents to deal with, you have teachers to deal with, you have staffs to deal with, and you have the kids to deal with. And, um, you know, everyone's going to have to balance that out. I would probably tend to do it more at the red level, um, but it's going to, and I would start with you know, pre-K and uh, elementary schools uh, first. I think those are relatively uh, lower risk. Uh, some of the data uh, that's being emerging would suggest that middle schools are at relatively lower risk as well. High schools are like colleges. I mean, there's nothing se separating a high school party from a college party except a cake of beer. Uh, so it's, you know, that's going to be a that's going to be a real crapshoot going forward about what what happens with high schools. George Rutherford, always good to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure. It's Dr. George Rutherford, who, again, is professor of epidemiology and biostatistics and directs the Prevention and Public Health Group organization at UCSF. We're going to have some other people joining us in a moment. First, I want to get another caller on, and that's Paul. Paul in San Francisco. Welcome. Thank you for having me on this morning. Uh, my name is Paul King, and I'm a shop owner of Cold Steel, uh, which is a piercing and tattoo services shop in the Upper Haight. And I guess what I have this morning is more just a, a comment on the frustration. Uh, the science hasn't been letting us down during this time. It's been very clear. And they even tell us before these holidays <laughs> that, you know, it's going to create a surge. And yet, they aren't doing lockdowns on the holidays that would prevent it. Instead, they're coming to us, which to my knowledge, there's no evidence showing that there are surges that are happening because of per personal services, especially ones where we're trained in wearing PPE. And as far as like 
these assurances and talking to the rhetoric where he's like, don't worry, it's only going to be a little bit of time and it's only going to be three weeks. Well, that's what we heard in the first lockdown in the spring. And we were locked down for six months. And as far as the, the, the things that they're offering up, uh, I've already taken a look at them. Uh, I have an accounting background. They're complicated and they create holes. So if you receive like paycheck protection plan, which we did, it's going to affect the payroll that you got, which is going to affect if you're going to be able to get grants or not from this new round of uh, supposedly help. It's not going to apply to everyone. It's not going to apply in our situation. Yeah, thank Paul, you. thank you for um, that. Actually, you, you prompted me to ask April about uh, the grants and the money that the governor outlined yesterday. We learned a good deal on that score, but we, I think we're going to hear from some people who say uh, the money is not that easy to come by. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts, April. Yeah, Governor Newsom acknowledged that there's been a lot of frustration around, you know, what's been happening at the federal level with, you know, another trying to pass another stimulus bill. Um, and, you know, folks uh, like our caller are, have, have been frustrated that that hasn't been coming through. There's been similar uh, frustration about, you know, in the first uh, stimulus bill around these, these PPP loans and how difficult they've uh, been to come by, especially by small businesses. Um, and so the governor did outline, you know, a couple different things that he was trying to do for small business owners, including um, some tax relief, uh, some grant programs, some loan programs. But as we've heard from the caller, you know, e even that is going to be complicated in terms of figuring out if, if you qualify and if you don't, well, well then what, what do you do? And I think a lot of the frustration around this most recent uh, order announcement has been among these, you know, folks doing personal services. You know, a lot of hairstylists have come up with you know, really intricate plans for how to safely, you know, cut and style hair outdoors. And so uh, I think those folks are feeling a lot of frustration that it, this, you know, order doesn't seem to align with the, you know, the messaging of the last couple of months. But again, as we heard Dr. Rutherford say, and, and uh, Dr. Gali and our other, you know, medical experts that it's a short period of time and it's it's just a, a much more comprehensive shutdown in an attempt to put a damp dampen this you know surge that we're seeing right now yeah the governor did emphasize that there would be additional relief for businesses coming from the legislature uh, for a broader relief package uh, he seemed to think that that would be brought to fruition in january uh, also uh want to mention the fact that he kept <clears throat> saying if you haven't applied for alone or haven't applied for um, relief of some kind, please do. You kept mentioning COVID19.ca.gov, uh, the website, and you can go there to learn from things, uh, as Governor Newsom outlined. I want to bring some, uh, I do want to talk with you, April, about what we learned from him about uh, the vaccines, but I want to bring some more people into the discussion here. We're going to bring Joshua Solomon on, and Dr. Solomon is Professor of Medicine at Stanford for the Center for Health and Policy and the Center for Primary Care and Outcomes Research at Stanford. Welcome to the program. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning to you. We'll also say good morning to Lori Thomas, who joins us, Executive Director of the Golden Gate Restaurant Association. Welcome, Lori Thomas. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Glad to have you as well. And let me begin with you, Dr. Solomon, and let's just talk about some of the public health sides of what we heard yesterday from Governor Newsom. I'd like your perspective on lockdowns and on the efficacy of lockdowns, particularly what we've learned, because, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've come a far piece since uh, when this first began back in March. 
Yeah, I, th I think that's right. Uh, and, you know, lockdowns are, are something that everybody wants to avoid to the extent that we can. Uh, we know that they're incredibly painful, they're difficult, uh, they're, they're really hard for workers, they're really hard for businesses, and I know we're going to talk more about that. Uh, but, but we're in a situation right now uh, that, that's really very alarming, and it's true uh, in the Bay Area, it's true in the state, and it's true around the country. Uh, if you just look in California, in, as, as you all know, cases have tripled over the month of November, hospitalizations have tripled, and, and, and we're really facing uh, an incredibly dangerous time in this, in this epidemic that, that, that calls for measures to do, do what we can to, to try to stop spread. Uh, as, as I think was said earlier on the program, this lockdown is going to look different than the one in the spring, uh, and that's because we've learned a lot more about which activities are the highest risk and which are, are lower risk. And so I, I think there is an attempt to, to really focus on restrictions that will make the biggest impact on transmission uh, without taking the, the strictest measures uh, that, that might uh, that might provide un, undue uh, pain and and losses and and that's that's I think where we are now we're also perhaps at a place uh, and I'm responding to something I believe uh, you said to Grace Wu uh, one of our producers that uh, you've got all these uh, well adults uh, as well as teenagers but adults who act like teenagers don't necessarily take uh, with the seriousness that one would hope for the need for hunkering down yeah, that that's hard, and you know, I think one of the difficulties th throughout this has has been really trying to avoid blame and shame, which I think we know in public health is quite counterproductive. Uh, I think it's it, we have to acknowledge uh, that people really have made an, an enormous amount of sacrifices over the course of the last nine months, and and for the most part, people have voluntarily given up a lot of activities that are really important to us all, uh, social interactions and seeing members of our family and eating in restaurants. At the same time, uh, it really doesn't take many uh, violations of, of some of the clear public health recommendations about not gathering indoors, uh, you know, not, not gathering in, in big groups. Um, and so sometimes it really is necessary to impose public health restrictions in order to really try to, to encourage the behavior that we know is necessary to reduce spread. And again, if you have questions about the new health order, you can give us a call now at our toll-free number. The number to call is 866-733-6786. That number again, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email. Any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. We're going to get to the vaccines with April Domboski, as I promised, but let me bring Lori Thomas into this and uh, Lori Thomas, over in Beverly Hills and a number of smaller cities, they're actually talking about I'm, I'm sort of responding to uh, Joshua Solomon, who's a public health expert. They're trying to create maybe their own public health departments because they feel the rules are too strict. And down in L.A. County, the restaurant industry, as I'm sure you're aware, on Wednesday actually challenged this whole notion of uh, no outdoor dining. And the county has to support essentially the ban. Uh, the judge ordered that because he said, Outdoor dining, he felt, is, uh, in terms of evidence uh, to ban it, minimal. Uh, where do you stand on that? So, um, again, thanks for having me. And, and, and um, you know, these are all tricky questions. And I think what's been so frustrating to the restaurant tours, both in San Francisco and around the state, is that uh, the goalposts for the rules keep changing. And that makes it very hard 
to run a business and to inform your employees of how their lives are going to be, you know, affected. Um, I it's think not only the goalposts you- that keep changing, forgive me, but it's also yeah. the uncertainty yeah. that continues. Right? That's, that's what I mean. Yeah. So yeah. when we think we have one set of rules and those rules change, that's, that's very hard to manage, right? And that's very hard to de- determine, do you cancel orders that you just placed? When are they going to shut you down? What's going to be shut down? What do I tell my employees about their paychecks? That, that's the world we're all living in right now as, as restaurant owners. And the outdoor dining question where the, the California Restaurant Association, which is the, you know, the broader association for the state, um, challenging the L.A. order um, will be interesting to see how that plays out because it, it sort of gets to the crux of the question is, does outdoor dining, you know, done as outdoor dining, these fully tented, heated enclosed spaces and parking lots are not outdoor dining, right? The whole point is ventilation. But if you were to do outdoor dining as San Francisco has has uh, described it, where it's, you know, one full tent side and a roof uh, at, at the maximum, um, you know, we, we think it's fairly safe. Um, my concerns now are, again, what's gonna happen? There's also a big concern about just to what extent restaurants can survive uh, with just having takeout uh, or pickup, uh, carryout, whatever. But we'll continue this discussion and we'll take your calls and emails and I will get to find out uh, for you what Governor Newsom said about the vaccines. Uh, April Domboski with us, Lori Thomas also, and Joshua Solomon, and you, our listeners, more of your calls and emails when we return. You're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. We're talking about the new regional stay-at-home order that the governor put out. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the new health order that was set forward by the governor yesterday. And with us, April Domboski, who is health correspondent for KQED News, Joshua Solomon, professor of medicine at Stanford. And we also have with us Lori Thomas, executive director of the Golden Gate Restaurant Association. And we'll go forthwith to your calls and emails. I just want to go back, uh, if I could, April, to you, though, to have listeners find out what the governor outlined yesterday in terms of vaccines. Uh, he kept talking about it as we've said on a few occasions already as the light at the end of the tunnel, uh, the third wave being to some extent uh, at least tremendously ameliorated by the vaccines through many distributors. Um, He also spoke about 320,000 doses that will be here between December 12th and December 15th, and that will put us right into phase one. So give us a sketch of what is ahead. Sure. So, um, you know, one of the things that has been widely agreed upon at the national and state level is that healthcare workers will be first in line for these first doses of a vaccine. And the thinking around that is, of course, that they are most at risk of contracting the virus because they're caring for people who have it. Um, They're in such close contact, but also because of the potential, you know, negative societal impact if, you know, doctors and nurses on the front lines get sick or get very sick and are out of commission for three or four weeks, then that's part of what we see putting a strain on our healthcare system in order to be able to take care of you know, the rest of us, especially at this time where we see cases spiking. So that's the rationale for healthcare workers getting it first. But the interesting thing is that, you know, California has 2.5 million healthcare workers across the state. 
And these first doses are, you know, as you said, 320,000. And so, you know, that requires the state to make decisions about which doctors and nurses will be first in line to get the vaccine. And the state has been doing some really careful planning around that, you know, just really thinking through how you kind of rank this. And so in California's plan, acute care hospitals will be the first facilities to be getting the vaccine. Uh, again, you know, again, the, the, the places where people who are most sick with COVID are being cared for. But even then, California has a million healthcare workers who work in acute care hospitals. And so then they've narrowed it down from there. And California has made the decision to direct these first, you know, shipments of vaccine to hospitals in low-income areas ahead of, you know, wealthier areas in recognition that, you know, disadvantaged people who live in disadvantaged neighborhoods have been harder hit by the virus. And that's because a lot of folks who work in essential jobs, you know, live in lower income neighborhoods where they live in perhaps, you know, multi-generational housing. Um, And so they've just, folks have been more likely to contract the virus. And as we've also seen, more likely to get very sick. And so that's the rationale. And then even from there, you know, um, the state has decided, well, within those low-income hospitals, which, you know, doctors and nurses within those hospitals should get it first. And, and you know, from there, we're looking at really, you know, frontline emergency room, critical care, doctors and nurses, and also giving a preference for healthcare workers over the age of 65, again, in recognition of, you know, what we now know about the virus, that folks who are over 65 tend to be harder hit by the virus if they if they contract it. And apropos what you're saying, April, uh, the governor emphasized something about, uh, he was very strong on this, not prioritize, or prioritizing uh, the most vulnerable and those who are not uh, the most vulnerable, that is the wealthy and those in position and those who can pull strings will not get ahead in the line. He said there's going to be prioritizing of those in need the most, and he was quite emphatic about that. I wanted to um, get to some of your calls and emails here, and I wanted to go back to Dr. Solomon, if I could, for a moment, uh, with a question one of the listeners asks about how infections, uh, have infections been traced to contact sports uh, uh, which are uh, prohibited in Santa Clara County? Um, and another question about contact tracing. Uh, what is that illuminated in terms of particular services that cause the spread of COVID? So we're talking about contact tracing as well as uh, contact sports here. A kind of a two-pronged question, if I could go to you, Joshua Solomon. Uh, I'm struck by the second question, particularly because I don't think there was enough contact tracing. I think that's a fairly serious judgment to make, but it's true, isn't it? I think that's right. Uh, certainly, as we were trying to come out of the spring lockdown, the hope was that public health departments would have enough funding and enough personnel to really use contact tracing as a way to contain infection uh, w- once we used lockdown uh, as a really blunt instrument to try to hammer infection down. Uh, in fact, that that support really never came. We were hoping for support from the federal government. And so health departments have been very much strapped uh, in terms of their ability to do contact tracing at the sort of scale that would be needed to, to make a big impact. And, that, and that's a, the result of a decade of kind of underfunding of, of public health. 
Um, one of the things, though, to kind of tie this in to the other question, though, uh, is that contact tracing, in addition to being a way for us to try to break cycles of transmission, also does give us a window into understanding where transmission is happening. And, and in fact, a lot of what we know now, nine months in, about uh, you know, what are the highest risk activities and venues uh, comes from contact tracing studies where it's been possible to really understand chains of transmission uh, and, to, and to link those back to, uh, you, you know, you, you've seen the examples of uh, choir practices and uh, private gatherings and households and, and a lot of information on uh, indoor dining and bars and restaurants. Uh, it, and, and a lot of those insights really have come from contact tracing studies. Uh, with regard to contact sports, uh, I think it's, it's, I'm not aware of, of evidence that's as direct uh, to, to speak about the risks associated with that. I think it does come from this broader insights about transmission and how uh, the, the virus is likely to be transmitted from close contact. Uh, you know, when people are exerting themselves, they're also more likely to be breathing uh, heavily. And so I think the, the understanding of contact sports derives less from direct evidence on outbreaks that have happened as a result of those and more on a, a more general understanding of transmission. Now, let me read a comment from a listener that I think is quite apt and important. This is a listener named Restu, uh, who says, I am thankful that Newsom is taking action to temper the surge. My husband is an emergency room doctor in the East Bay, and the surge will burden him and other medical staff. We plead you to comply. This is how you can concretely applaud the frontline workers. And let me bring a caller on here. We go to Petaluma and welcome Alexander. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, sir? Okay. Thank you for asking. Um, I just want to bring up the fact that since mask wearing is so important that I think it's also equally important we talk about wearing a proper kind of mask. Um, I read six months ago that the neck gaiter, which I see like 10% of the people wearing in crowded supermarkets is actually worse than a mask. Maybe you guys could discuss the importance of getting that message out or if that is the proper message. And I'll thank you for this important conversation. Thanks for having me. All right, and thank you for that call. John writes, uh, apropos of that call, how do you square the fact that LA County has had an outdoor mask mandate for more than a month uh, <laughs> with the fact that cases are still going up exponentially there? Can I get a comment from you on that, Dr. Solomon? Yeah, and I think that's a that's a reasonable question. I, I think the, the the thing that we've learned is is that no single measure, uh, especially as these are are being imperfectly implemented, as as the the caller noted, uh, is likely to to be a magic bullet solution. And so, it's why public health people really are recommending that uh, that what we need is a is a multi layered approach. We know that that masks, uh, if used widely, if worn properly can make a dent in transmission. Uh, it's unlikely that they're gonna be the single thing that, uh, that reverses the, the trends that we're on now. So, that, so that's why I think you're seeing in these public health orders and you're seeing uh, in, in all of the recommendations around public health, uh, an array of, of different things that we really need to be pursuing in parallel to, to try to reverse the trends that we're seeing. And so that includes mask wearing, it includes distancing, it includes avoiding gatherings and all of the things that, that you've been hearing recommended uh, for months and months now. Well, as I said earlier, President-elect Biden has called for 100 days of mask wearing. We'll see what kind of unity we get uh, in a nation which is very divided on that score. But uh, to the caller's point, Dr. Solomon, uh, what masks work? And does, for example, bandana, does that work well? 
Yeah, I, I think there's been some evidence uh, in the scientific literature that, that some masks uh, work better than others. And so they kind of fall on a continuum. The N95s that our healthcare workers uh, are wearing uh, are probably the most effective, but those are not widely available. And, and there's been shortages and, and, and those really have been preserved for our healthcare workers. Uh, from there, I, I think uh, surgical masks are also quite effective. Uh, and then there's a continuum down through cotton masks and bandanas uh, and the, the neck gaiters that the, the uh, reviewer mentioned. But I think that more important than the, the type of fabric is really that people are wearing masks properly. And so, you know, you, you, do, you still see some people wearing masks on their chin uh, or masks covering their mouth but not their nose. Uh, and we know that that is gonna make the mask less effective. And so I, I think there is some evidence that different types of masks uh, may be more or less effective, but probably more important uh, is that people are wearing them properly. Well, a question, uh, I'll read it as a rhetorical question from a listener named Elizabeth who says, I hear about small businesses getting cited and fined, but nothing happening to the average anti-masker who refuses to follow the law, why? Let me bring Laurie Thomas uh, back into this discussion again, who's executive director of the Golden Gate Restaurant Association. And if uh, the governor's plan goes into effect, Laurie, I'm just wondering uh, what we're going to see in the way of many of these restaurants. I suppose a number of them obviously are going to close down, but many of them are talking about hibernation. Yeah. So, again, this is this is. Uh you know, very concerning. And, and I own two small restaurants in San Francisco myself. So speaking as a restaurant owner. You um, might as well mention them, Terzo and Roses. Yes, thank you. So I feel the pain, you know, personally, financially for all my team members. Um, you know, a couple of things. One is we're, we're trying to figure out when everything's going to go into effect. So again, the level of uncertainty is, is really tough for everybody too. Uh, we just dropped a survey that we don't have final, um, you know, analysis of, but it's looking like of the respondents, over 63% said that they're, you know, losing money operating for um, outdoor dining plus takeout and delivery and 26% and are breaking even. So that's 90% that are either barely breaking even, you know, getting back to zero or losing money. And so what I think we'll see is the hibernation move. So um, this is a tough time of year, but many of many of us, including myself, will have to say that it doesn't make sense to stay open to just do takeout and delivery, that you'll lose more money doing that. And, and they'll choose to close, hopefully temporarily, till we get more federal relief. And where are you expecting restrictions to come from? I mean, the city, the state, both? <laughs> I think that... Um, you know, there's a lot of rumors flying around, um, but I think we're going to see some tightening. Um, yeah, you know, San Francisco has always taken a, a stricter view of things. You guys probably remember in September when San Francisco was, um, when the new tier system started, San Francisco didn't, didn't allow indoor dining for, you know, uh, that whole month. Um, so San Francisco has always taken a more uh, tougher approach. Um, you know, being more conservative from a health perspective. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see, you know, some further tightening uh, coming before the state uh, happens. And once again, Lori Thomas is executive director of the Golden Gate Restaurant Association. April Domboski is uh, KQED's health correspondent. And April, a listener asks, why isn't there a public database or someplace people uh, where, where we can find out about people catching infections? It's not hard, this listener writes, to survey those who get COVID from public places they visited. I'm not sure I follow the, the question. 
Um, well, I think the broader the question is why, why isn't there a database, uh, you know, in terms of contact tracing or something along those lines? Do we have anything like that? Um, you know, I think the data sharing, you know, that's not public has um, also, you know, been an issue. And it. it's been interesting to me as a journalist that, you know, the, the primary sources that we are seeing for tracking numbers in general of coronavirus cases have been media outlets. You know, we haven't been going directly to the CDC, um, you know, on things like that. Um, but our state public health department certainly puts out numbers every single day um, in terms of, you know, the number of coronavirus infections and deaths. Um, so I'm not sure if the, if the listener is asking about you know, some kind of public database about where infections are contracted, which I, I think that's the spirit of the question. Scale, yeah. We don't, we don't. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the answer to that is we don't, we don't always know. I mean, I think one thing that's really been clear over the summer is that um, in just conversations that I've had with contact tracers is that people were contracting the virus from their people they live with. And that was, you know, far and wide as, as, you know, things began reopening, um, it began to expand a little bit more and that, that was then most likely, you know, coworkers. Um, but so, you know, the more people move around, you know, if, if you are the kind of person who's been, you know, going out and doing lots of different types of activities because of the incubation time of the virus, we don't always know where you contracted it. So I think that's probably the primary reason we are not, you know, putting up lists of, you know, businesses or, or locales. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an enigma in many ways, unfortunately. Uh, could you also maybe say something about vaccination priority uh, for elder care homes? Uh, I haven't asked you about that. Yeah, uh, so, you know, in the same tier as healthcare workers uh, are, you know, the, the CDC and our state um, vaccine committees have decided to prioritize people who live in long-term care homes. And there are a couple reasons for that. Um, we have just seen the, the death rate um, in those long-term care homes is just so high. So people who live in nursing homes and assisted living facilities represent, you know, 1% of the population, but they represent 40% of the deaths from from COVID. And so that's that's one of the reasons that, you know, health officials have decided to prioritize them. But there is also concern among advocates for the elderly about that because the, you know, the um, trials that have been done about the vaccines that are about to become available, none of them have been tested on long-term care residents. And so there are some people who are, um, older in the trials, but even that is pretty vague because it's broken down by, you know, people 56 to 85. And, and there's quite a range of health profiles and of people in those in those health um, in that bracket. And so, uh, yeah, there there is concern that folks who are older and, you know, really incredibly frail, that perhaps a vaccine wouldn't work in those populations or perhaps the side effects could be really exacerbated in that population. So, so there, there is a lot of concern, but at the same time, uh, that priority decision was made um, to make the vaccine available to folks in, in these long-term care homes. As long as we're talking about vaccines again, let me see if I can squeeze another caller in from Oriana. Joins us. Good morning. Good morning. Um, my question is, if we get vaccinated, uh, are we still still able to transmit COVID in case we uh, 
contracted. We don't necessarily get sick or severely sick if we're vaccinated, but is there still a, a, a potential of being carriers? Thank yeah, you. thank you for that question. I, I brought it up a little bit before. I was uh, intimating that with uh, George Rutherford. Uh, let me go to you, Joshua Solomon. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of the vaccine trials have not been designed to measure directly whether the vaccines protect you from getting infected. Uh, a lot of the trials are, are measuring as their primary out, outcome uh, whether a person develops symptomatic illness. So it's going to remain a bit of a question. I, I think there's reason to believe uh, that a vaccine that's very protective, as we're seeing, against people getting symptomatic illness is also likely to be protective against people getting infected and therefore being able to spread the virus. Uh, I think some of the trials are measuring this directly, but uh, but we, uh, we're we going to really, really want more yeah, information. Yeah. We're going to have to leave it there. Joshua Solomon, appreciate very much you being with us. and. Ditto Lori Thomas and, of course, April Domboski and you, our listeners. We thank you and we thank who are behind the scenes here. Forums produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Larberg, Ariana Prell, Blanca Torres, Caroline Smith, Grace Wan, and Susan Britton. Senior editors Dan Zoll. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snapchat Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.